And he's looking at me, he's like, man, you are a shining star. You're going to be right where I am in, in no time. And I took that to heart and applied for college the next day. Uh... <laughs> Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. Uh, today, I'm with Andrew Byers of Finn River Cider. Hey, Andrew, hey. thanks for being patient. This is our second attempt. We had technology fail us before, but we're we're persistent, if nothing else. So, welcome. Thanks very much. I mean, good things worth waiting for, right? Yeah. So, what's your story? How did you get started in cider and Ultimately, how did you end up here at Finn River? Sure, sure. Well, I think uh, I think we've started referencing we being the Finn River, uh, you know, motherboard, referencing me as a uh, a culinary botanist. And what that looks like on the, on the ground is straight out of high school, I went down to culinary school at the California School of Culinary Arts there in Pasadena, and. After that, worked for a few years in some pretty swank restaurants in the general L.A. area and then found myself one uh, lovely evening talking to my chef. And, you know, he's a a couple beverages deep and maybe a a full pack of cigarettes in. And he's looking at me. He's like, man, you are a shining star. You're going to be right where I am in in no time. And I took that to heart and applied for college the next day. Uh, (laughs) And... Uh, decided that uh, it was a lovely vocation, but that I I thought the the you know sordid underbelly of the restaurant world uh, would would not actually support me all that well. So then I uh, spent a better part of ten years uh, up at Humboldt State uh, studying botany and fungal ecology, uh, chemistry, Spanish education, and English lit. And it's what happens when you spend ten years kind of bouncing around in and out of the North Coast. During that time, uh, I met someone and they introduced me to some of their community out in upstate New York. And so being a California boy, I adventured uh, into the Finger Lakes region, uh, just south of Ithaca, New York. And I met some amazing fruit growers who were also cider makers. And so, you know, fresh out of college, I started picking fruit for a living. And then, um, Um, yeah. Were mom and dad just so proud? You know, they knew I, I was on my own path, but yeah, okay. I mean, downwardly mobile, right? Right. Uh, and uh, there's, yeah, there's more there, I'm sure of it. But uh, uh, as we, as as I, you know, ended up started picking apricots and cherries early in the summer, and then ended up picking peaches and plums and apples. And uh, after you pick apples, it's time to press the apples because that's what's on the agenda. Uh, and so we were doing and then doing farmers markets. And then once the apples were pressed, the fermentation began. And then uh, as that kind of vintage pushes through, there's a need for help uh, bottling and then labeling and then selling. And so with a culinary background, uh, I, I knew very much how to speak to chefs and how to speak about food. And the language of wine is very similar to the language of food. And, and so we were, we, I say we were making, I was definitely a grunt on, uh, on the ground floor doing whatever somebody told me to do, namely whatever Autumn and Ezra at Eve's Cidery told me to do. Uh, okay. And those lovely folks 
uh, we're making some of the, the highest quality hard cider in North America, still are. In that context, I kept my eyes open and I did as much as I could with them. And as you go through that kind of vintage cycle, you touch all of those little processes. And I did a number of sales uh, trips for them into New York, uh, down into Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn, and was helping to navigate some of their self-distribution, dropping off cases and pitching new accounts, trying to figure out how to bring cider to a populace that didn't seem to recognize that you would be able to make alcohol from apples, right? Okay. And that was about 16, 17 years ago now. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Considering you look like you're about 12, so this is really kind of... Yeah, that's the, I started the shaving last week. I thought it was Oh, my gosh. Time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, as it turns... I mean, there are definitely people who have been in the American cider industry for longer than I have. Okay. But I find myself going to, you know, conferences or trade association meetings and realizing that the number of years that I've been engaged in this activity kind of makes me an old timer. Okay. And, and and that has just been a really fun space to be uh, encouraging and kind of building a ca- helping to build a category. Uh, so you were in New York. What? Oh, how did you get? How did you get yeah. here? Or was yeah? What was that like? So I finished uh, born and raised in California. In the middle of my sophomore year of high school, my my dad took a transfer to the Hanford uh, area. Uh, working, I believe, at the time for Lockheed Martin. And so I finished high school in Kennewick, Washington, okay. and at Kamayakan High School, in case anyone is interested. And so in that context, um, my parents have been in Washington uh, since my high school days, and they're now living in Olympia. And so uh, my wife, Rebecca, was out in uh, New York with me doing cider work as well. And we had uh, recently uh, brought the only grandchild into the family. Ah. And so we were very far away. Uh, her parents are down in San Diego. My parents were in Olympia. And uh, we were 3,000 miles away. And that was, uh, you know, weighing on our consciousness. And then my dad got in a bicycling accident and came pretty close to not surviving that bicycle accident. Mm-hmm. And, we, and I felt, as a son, uh, very far, far away. And uh, at that point, we were like, we... Let's get on back to the West Coast. This East Coast place is weird. And I mean, there's a whole number, another list of criteria that we were using to figure out where we wanted to kind of settle in. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I wrote a cover letter to, like, I think all 12 members of the Northwest Cider Association that had orchards and were of a similar scale that I was thought I had skills in. And the only ones to write me back was Christine Keith at Finn River. Um well, I did get I did get communication back from uh, uh, Wes and Laura over at Dragon's Head on Bashan Island, but they were not look they were looking for an entry level, and I was already beyond entry level and trying to support a young family, and so I was looking for a space to grow, and I was looking for someone who needed just a, uh, that next step up, you know, uh, of a of a cider making, maybe say a production manager, but mm-hmm. at the time in what is this 2013, I don't know that I. I, I I don't I don't I needed to work into that title. We'll put it that way. Okay. So you moved from New York to <laughs> to Chimicum, Washington. Chimicum, in, Washington in 2013, um, and you know driving across the country, set up shop out here, and my first day was on a Sunday, as we uh, were transplanting these trees that we had dug out of the ground in Mount Vernon, and uh, brought over across the ferry in a trailer, like a, uh, 952 trees. 
that were seven years old and you know about the size of my forearm or something like that okay um, and so we were transplanting uh trees to lay out the first functional orchard block of bittersweet and bitter sharp apples uh here in Chimicum on the what at the time was known as the brown dairy and is now the Finn River Orchard. Okay. Was it shocking for you to go from Southern California to New York and now end up in <laughs> Chimicum? Uh, to a certain extent. We were pretty rural in upstate New York, living in an off-the-grid cabin okay. uh, and you know, being woken up by beavers in the middle of the night as the <laughs> slap their tails to to display and do their mail thing okay and you know hunting mushrooms and wild ramps uh and other things that upstate new york brings coming back uh to kind of rural western washington uh it was it smelled good i'm i'm, okay. <laughs> I'm used to living by the ocean and and okay. in, in pine trees and it all makes sense and my wife as well and so it had the right humidity it had the right seasons uh, it, it makes pretty good sense. Yeah. Okay. So shot. at this point in your, in our story, we've got you to Finn river. Yes, sir. Now let's talk about Finn river for a little bit. Yeah. How did Finn river come into existence? What's mm-hmm. the, what's the backstory there? So there are three founders and they are Christy and Keith Kessler and Eric Jorgensen. Uh, and so Christy and Keith, uh, have been in the area, well, all of them had been in the area uh, for some time uh, teaching in, in various schools around here as English teachers and math teachers. And Christy and Keith bought a 33-acre farm that had this blueberry bog and a little piece of Chimicum Creek winding through it and uh, 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 some land that had been prepared and was ready to become a, a small-scale organic vegetable farm. So a little bit of infrastructure, right? But I think, but no house, just a barn. And so they bought this uh, uh, hunk of property with another family, the Dean O'Donnells. And so you had the Kisslers and the Dean O'Donnells on a 33-acre farm. They promptly named it for their uh, two children. At the time, uh, neither of them had siblings, uh, as far as I understand it. And so you have Finn Dean O'Donnell and you have River Kissler. Okay. Um, there is no Finn River as a, as a body of water. It is the uh, two names mushed together. So Finn River, named after these two young gentlemen who I believe are finishing their first year in college this year. Okay. Um, We have some of their baby photos around. Okay. Right. Uh, So Finn and River uh, coming together to make Finn River. The Dean O'Donnells moved on to uh, other projects and they needed to be bought out of the farm uh, after a handful of years. And so as a small farm, uh, kind of struggling to pay the bills and trying to figure out how uh, you one family could take over the payments that two families were collaborating on. Uh, the Kisslers engaged with the Jefferson County Land Trust uh, to sell the development rights and preserve in perpetuity this 33 acres as f- agricultural farmland uh, for as long as our systems exist. Uh, and so they modified the deed and put an, eas- uh, an agricultural easement onto it. And they were hunting for a value-added product that wouldn't exploit the land in a, in a disproportionate way, and that would really be able to support uh, an agricultural existence, right? So selling a raw commodity is one thing. Selling the value-added uh, is really where it's all at, which is why you'll see small farms making jams and jellies uh, and or hard cider. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So in that context, uh, Lige Christensen, I know a lot of names here, but bear with me, the story comes together. Uh, Lige, <laughs> Lige Christensen, um, Lige and Kay, they are the, the family that sold the 33 acres to Christy and Keith. They also share a property line and live in the back. Uh, and these lovely folks uh, who planted the blueberry bog and all of that came over and Lige is an avid home brewer and home fermenter. And he makes uh, apple beer, which is, you know, some malt extract combined with some apple juice and you uh, ferment away and you make a product that is uh, lightly appley and lightly beerish. And he was uh, getting well known uh, in his own circles for such a thing. And he brought over a bottle of hard cider because he has, uh, has a pedestrian orchard, meaning all on dwarf trees. Uh, on his property, which is right there next to Finn River, and said, have you all thought about making something like this? And that was back 2010 or so when these conversations were going on. And it was that kind of introduction to the concept of cider as a value-added product where you could make, uh, you know, specialty additions with fruit that you could get your hands on locally. And that because we're in Washington State, there's access to the the commodity fruit uh, that is the you know the processing fruit that comes out of uh, Washington State apple production, and so there was access to both. You know, you could put trees on your land and make one thing, and you could buy in uh, to be able to increase volume. So, from a business planning perspective, you have this lovely synergy of uh, of what you grow and what comes from your land, and being able to supplement it with something that comes from a, a very strong regional identity, and putting those things to come together. Cider has always been a means to an end for Fen River, you know, a means to protect the creek or a means to preserve farmland, a means to save the farm. Um, and at the moment, Fen River is uh, very much a means to stimulate rural economy and build community. And we, we've been chasing down those mission statements for for better part of a decade now. And we've moved from that original 33 acre farm about two miles down the road to where the Fen River orchard is. And we have revamped the, the old hay barns and the feeding trough and turned the old milking parlor into a tap room. And in that kind of energy ball, um, we are now a rural destination location with uh, a great big lawn and picnic tables and yard games, as well as live music programs on the weekends and some space for private events. We have a vibrant cider club and our club members come in here and they have their own little special space that we've allocated for them. We built a new production facility and so my barn is uh, uh, full of tanks and for the most part, all of our processes are inside under a roof. Um, all big deals. Uh, and, and so here we are at the Chimicum Crossroads as we call them. There's just a stop sign. Uh, mm-hmm. But we are uh, uh, you know, at the Chimicum Crossroads and uh, uh, a focal point of the community here, um, driving tourism and, you know, again, trying to weave that fabric of community. Okay. How's that? that when did, when did Finn river begin production commercially? There's some small debate about when the license was filed versus when the first bottle was sold. Uh, okay. And since, we want to play by the rules. Let's go with mm-hmm. the conservatives. No, just kidding. We would say uh, 21 uh, would have been, I think we filed the license in 2010, which made 2020 our 10 year anniversary. Okay. Uh, okay. And so, you know, and I showed up in 2013 and uh, some drama had already passed in terms of products that, uh, you know, maybe weren't as successful as they were originally planned. And, 
you know, the, the habanero cider that we produce uh, had just been that January of 2012 or of 2013 taken to the Strange Brew Festival in Port Townsend. And that is one of our, uh, uh, you know, I guess signatures, uh, not quite our flagship, but definitely one of our uh, fastest movers and bestsellers. Uh, and really? that had just been introduced uh, okay. into the game. From a volume standpoint now, what what did they start off producing and now approximately what's production mm-hmm. level nowadays? Sure. Well, when I started in 2013, um, we were doing about a thousand gallons a month or so. So about 12,000 gallons a year. Okay. Um, and we were buying in uh, our apples from cold storage in Yakima and getting, you know, tractor trailers full of 32 apple bins dropped off at the farm. And then we would squeeze those apples on our squeeze box press and then ship the empty bins back after we'd taken two or three loads. So I was getting about a thousand gallons in apple form uh, Mm -hmm. brought over every month, every month and a half or so. And that was keeping us pretty well fed. Uh, But the original batches, uh, I believe that you know, we're talking a couple hundred gallons here and there. So, you know, first year, maybe just a few hundred gallons. Mm -hmm. And then pretty quickly there, finding a a rhythm and a pattern, introducing some what we call contemporary ciders that are not vintage-based, but are made on more of a continuous pathway. And so those uh, contemporary ciders, as that uh, product line, you know, gained traction in the United States cider market, uh, it, the, the question has been, you know, what is our capacity for growth and where can we be? Uh, we ended from that 12,000, you know, or started with my tenure at that about 12,000 gallon a year mark. Uh, this year, I think we're aiming at about 80, 85,000. Okay. Uh, and, you know, in that context, it's very much been organic for us in the sense that it mimics a growing organism as opposed to say like venture capitalism you can do the whole venture capitalism being like if you build it they will come right you get investors you deck out your production facility uh with the capacity to do 250,000 gallons a year and then you hope that you put all the rest of your money into marketing right and you hope mm-hmm. that you can sell that much uh i think finn river has approached it somewhat differently in that uh it's more like uh people just keep coming so we've got to build something let's get on it uh okay and in that way, you know, I still have, gosh, I think almost all of the small tanks that we've started with, you know, our, our 150, our, our 160, our 220 gallon tanks, um, they're still in use being doing small, cute little batches of things. But, okay. you know, it started off with a few small tanks and then it's always been this additive uh, notion. And it's not that I, I won't get rid of anything, but our growth pattern has always just very much been, you know, uh, what can we afford and what do we need to meet needs now? And how can we be conservative in our debt and conservative in our risk? And that's mm-hmm. been a, a, a really healthy feeling growth pattern. Yeah. So does this allow you with having the access to the, we'll call them original tanks, mm-hmm. um, to to try things that you think might have a place in the market? I You know, you know, Mm-hmm. you know jalapeno pineapple meets guava i'm just you know adding sure. adding words I, but well yeah. yeah so can you do like a 150 gallon 
you know, test batch, if you will, to see if it does well in the tasting room? Yeah, not quite like that. Uh, but I, I think I get the, the, the heart in the question there. Like, I, I feel pretty strongly that I'm not going to experiment uh, on my customer base. Uh, okay. You know, we, we are a, a premium cider, and it is, as far as I know, I think we're the, one of the most expensive ciders on the market. We're one of few that put organic juice and organic ingredients in it. Um, and, you know, we focus on that premium. And at that price point, I, I just don't see any room for, for fiddling about to see if something works. Uh, and okay. so to a certain extent, yes, uh, we have lots of possibility to innovate. Um, but I do that innovation in, in, you know, much smaller batches like carboys, five gallon jugs and things along those lines to try okay. out a new yeast here and there. And then if I like it and we've prototyped it and it's like, hmm, that, that has some potential we'll go into a bigger batch, which has some risk, right? Like I'm going to put $10,000 worth of juice in a tank and I'm going to pitch this yeast that I liked in the five gallon version. How is it going to scale up? And and what what, is, what are the impacts going to be when the fermentation dynamics are on a really large tank? And then mm-hmm. in terms of infusions and things that we're going to put into cider, which is a very American cider thing, um, we are very focused on our regional identity and building up our local farm network. And so uh, I've, we've constrained ourselves to only put uh, things that we can tell a story about and be connected to into our cider. For the most part, this holds true. But while I can source ha- uh, jalapenos or habaneros from the, uh, just on the other side of the mountains uh, that actually have some heat to them, um, we're not putting, say, like lemon rind or, or guavas and oranges and things um, into the cider. Not necessarily because uh, I, I disagree with that flavor profile, but I don't know any farmers that grow guavas around here. Right. Uh, and right. so without a connection, we, we lose the framework with which to tell the story. And so I, re- I really want to know who's doing what and be able to explain why I bothered to put this in there. And just tasting good functionally is not enough. Um, it is in some cases, but for the most part, if we're going to put something weird into a cider, there's going to be a reason um, that's outside of it just tasting good. So your, your food network that you're, you work with in their building, how, mm-hmm. how far away do you go to source items? We haven't put a limit on that. Um, okay. again, it, I think it's connected to the story. The, mm-hmm. you know, we had a good friend, uh, a friend of a friend in Chico, California, uh, and they produce Chico chai, which is a blend of chai tea. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, we were looking for, oh gosh, well, I don't even remember the logic, how it came up, but it was like, hey, meet this, uh, uh, Sarah is her name, and check out how conscientiously she selects her herbs for her chai blends and uh, how delicious it is and things along those lines. And through that kind of familial network, we have a kind of cordial style, what we call a brandy wine. Um, that is uh, a chai brandy wine, and it's got uh, a big pile of this chai tea infused into apple brandy and then mixed with a very lightly fermented pear wine. And so you have this kind of uh, sweet chai-forward bit of of cordial that's about 18% alcohol. 
Okay, so that you know takes me down to Chico, California, with a story and a connection um, to why. There's also similarly in the brandy wines, just because they offer some unique ways to present flavor profiles. Uh, a, a local chocolatier um, who takes uh, selects single origin cacao beans from like a single like a single hillside uh, or a grove. I don't know if they call them <laughs> orchards or groves. And they get transported on a sailboat in a carbon neutral uh, pathway. And so this high-end chocolatier is bringing these amazing cacao beans where when you taste her bars, you can taste the difference of like a south-facing slope versus uh, the, you know, the eastern rain shadow or something of, of Ecuadorian mountains. It's ridiculously amazing. Uh, so let me, let me yeah. pause you because <laughs> I, I think I have a... This is about me, not about this. This this is going to be a negative statement, and it's negative about me. So, I just don't have the palate to pick up those nuances. Are they? How how does one develop that? You're telling me you you're you're, you're t- the tasting notes are different between what side of the hill that, you know the, the cacao is on. I mean, how does one develop that sense of? attention to detail on the palate. I think a couple of things. Um, One, I can only taste it because someone is prompting me, right? Like, okay. uh, I'm being told this is different. And you you hear this note, this comes from beans that see more sunshine Uh, or you, you taste this in there and you do get that little hint of dried cherry or something like that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I do get that hint of dry cherry. And they're like, well, this is because of that. So it's very much a, um, a facilitated uh, experience, okay. I think. And then otherwise, um, and so in my, in my cacao action that I get to play with, I'm taking a conglomeration of all of those uh, as, a, as a byproduct of her chocolate making. And so I get to uh, um, kind of take a waste stream um, that would have gone to a compost pile, and instead I can extract a bunch of uh, cacao profile from it. And so I, I'm not able to necessarily extract those subtle differences. But in like the world of coffee, like say when people do cuppings and you're tasting 13 different uh, uh, coffees from, you know, sometimes different uh, subspecies of beans, different regions of the earth, we're talking about terroir, right? Can you mm-hmm. taste the terroir through the product? Um Sometimes yes and sometimes no, uh, as far as like whether I get there. And so how do other people get there? I think it's just as nerdy uh, as, say, boat builders or, uh, <laughs> um, or you know, I'm just trying to think of other like weird connoisseurship worlds. There's a carpenter, Finnish carpenters that, you know, they're square up into a 32nd of an inch or something along those lines. And like I'm square up to like maybe three quarters of an inch. Uh, and so like, yeah, I can put a garden bed together, but no, I'm not building those cupboards or, or that bathroom vanity. Uh, and so I think there's just varying degrees of attention to small details and then it has to do with level of interest. If you love it, then you're going to nerd out into it. And I think, I think you'd get there. And this is like what, what sommeliers and the wine folks do, uh, as well, I think, right? Like the more experience you have with it, the more attention to detail becomes, uh, relevant to your thought process. And so the more wines you have and the more you think about them, the more you can think about them. You build your own skill set. And I think it's a positive feedback loop. What kind of coffee do you drink? I, well, I drink too much coffee. 
Mm-hmm. I, I drink all the coffee. <laughs> I tend to, I tend to, um, I am not typically a fan of most coffee from the, from the African continent. Mm-hmm. I don't like the, the whiny blueberry forward Ethiopian. The Yerka Yeah. Yeah. It's not my thing. I tend to like more Central and South American coffees. Mm-hmm. In that context, you had to have all of those. Right. You had to True. Uh, and then be like less than impressed or be like, hmm, that's not my cup of tea, cup of coffee. I, uh, you know, I don't like uh, particular things that come off as acidic to me in coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tend to really appreciate uh, darker roasts. And then I spent time mm-hmm. in Louisiana and I always put roasted chicory into my coffee grounds. You, you, you did still do. Um, you still do. Yeah, I, bu- I buy a case of uh, community coffees bags of pure chicory, and I cut my coffee with like one one to eight, uh, one scoop of chicory to eight scoops of coffee as I as I grind my beans in the morning. Um, which I think I think it's just like it, no no coffee connoisseur would ever tolerate, right? Um, but at the same point, there's my there's my ticket. So like I can definitely taste a bunch of those things, but I like the stuff that's basically burnt, blown out, and has this other herb in it. Um, and so yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, I always end up asking coffee. We'll just jump right into the coffee thing, and we'll just <laughs> we'll we'll take a sidebar for coffee. Sure. What's so when you're making coffee in the morning? What do you what what beans? What do you what do you gravitate towards? What is there a roaster that you like? Mm-hmm. So it, uh, I picked my roaster because they were pretty close to me and they were a B Corp. Um, mm-hmm. And this was as Finn River got certified as a B Corporation. Uh, I was encouraged to find other B Corporations. And so I needed to be able to supply coffee to my production crew and to our farmhouse office uh, and things along those lines. And so I've been buying somewhat exclusively from Grounds Grounds for Change out of Paulsville. Uh, okay. And... I, I've, I'm quite delighted. They do a, a reasonable array of roasts and origins. Uh, and I tend to go with this one called Cafe Feminino, which is Peruvian. Um, and it comes from a cooperative that is uh, woman-owned and woman-operated. And so there's some fundraising attached to it, which fits with the B Corp model. Uh, and then uh, you've got your origin in Peruvian uh, coffee there. And I get it as a pretty dark roast. Um, okay. So there's like my, my, my central line there. Yeah. So when you're preparing this at home, what, what methodology do you use to prepare coffee? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a French press. You, you like French press. Okay. And so we'll grind beans, uh, not daily, but we have a small jar that we fill up and that will get us through half a week or so. Uh, okay. and so we'll, we'll have beans prepared, uh, in that way. And then the, I got into mushrooms a long time ago, uh, like wild and medicinal mushrooms. And so things like reishi and chaga uh, and Mm -hmm. turkey tail. And in that context, we have for a long time in our tea water or our coffee water, it's a pot on the stove that Mm -hmm. we bring up to temperature. And there's always a chunk of uh, one of these medicinal mushrooms floating around in there um, for like an it gives an undertone of earthiness or mushroominess for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Not a huge deal. Uh, but it is a way to be consuming, um, our, 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 medicine every day, all the time. And so, uh, when I'm using my mushroom water, 
uh, into a, a pot of coffee. And there's folks that are now selling, I think, chaga and reishi coffee blends that are, are pre-manufactured in that way. Yes, there are. I just mm-hmm. want to go ahead and say that I'm, I'm a little more old school than that. And it's just a chunk of mushroom the size of my thumb, whatever it may be. And that turkey right. tail tastes a lot stronger than chaga, than, than reishi. And, you know, that's how we We also make our ramen from that if we're having ramen. Uh, and it's my methodology to make sure that my daughter and my wife get, uh, uh, you know, earth medicine before we end up needing uh, human medicine, so to speak. Do you notice, what do you notice? I, mean, you didn't, I didn't think we'd be talking mushrooms on this episode. What, what benefits do you notice by doing the, the mushroom water in tea, coffee, ramen? Yeah. Well, I mean, so you're asking, I guess, for an anecdote, which is not science. And so, right. you know, all of my claims are from my own uh, right. perception. That's okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, so I read a bunch of Paul Stamets books, um, and I am a believer uh, in okay. in what these beta glucans can do, and how these are the precursors to your white blood cells that fight viruses. Uh, and so these mushrooms in clinical trials support your viral immune system, which okay. at the moment seems rather pertinent. Um, <laughs> just, but, just a bit. <laughs> Uh, uh, so in my head, you know, there's stories of folks who have uh, retarded cancer um, with uh, focused turkey tail uh, uh, con- consumption and things along those lines. And so, we, you know, the reishi mushroom is called the immortal mushroom in, all, in Chinese literature. And it was the emperor's only mushroom for a long time. Like, you know, the English wanted deer for their kings and the, the Chinese apparent emperor wants mushrooms. Um, difference of cultures, yeah. Where do you source them from? Are you are you finding those locally? The reishi grow around here, uh, for sure. Okay. And, and I find those locally. Same with the turkey tails. The chaga, honestly, I had one pretty rad uh, harvest off of a, a fallen tree in upstate New York 15 years ago. And I have been judiciously guarding it uh, and bit by bit putting chunks in. Um, but it grows on black birch trees, uh, and we don't really have those out here on the coast. And I've I've looked yeah. at the distribution map. I know where I've got to go uh, <laughs> when it comes time to try and harvest again. Um, okay. But they tend to grow high up on black birch trees, which grow uh, in river valleys a little bit north of where we are. So, yeah. So what are my okay. benefits? Um, I think I don't get sick very much. And when I do get sick, it turns around quick. I find okay. myself pretty healthy and I, and I am not like slamming kale smoothies or anything along those lines to be really healthy. Um, okay. And I think my family stays pretty healthy. Uh, All right. Yeah. And maybe I'm fighting long-term cancer. That's what I'm telling myself in my head anyways. Right. Okay. So to recap the coffee though, you're using um, the Peruvian bean that's roasted dark. You're blending that with chicory. Uh-huh. And you're adding mushroom water to it. Yeah, I mean, I've never really heard it laid out like that. It sounds kind of crazy. Um, but yes, you got that right. <laughs> I will say that you're the only guest that I've ever asked coffee that has used those ingredients in that combination. I, That's cool. I really do like uh, the strong Louisiana or New Orleans style coffee. Uh, okay. I, growing up, my parents drank Café du Monde. Uh, because oh, of okay. their time in, in Mississippi and that's how they got introduced to it and so you know it's it's been the flavor of my parents coffee 
uh, sure. growing up. And so there's a, a, there's a bit of that kind of inheritance for sure. Interesting. That explains why I'll drink Taster's Choice because that's what my dad drank growing up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's, I had that probably when I was 10 years old. Okay. Yeah, I tell you, well, it did not translate to the uh, Miller High Life. Just saying. In terms of things oh, that my dad drank that I'm not. You, don't, you didn't appreciate the Miller High Life? It just hasn't ever quite come it's around. It's the champagne of beers. Yeah, <laughs> fully. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when given a choice, um, I suppose there's always going to be a time and a place. Uh, well, just just because we're talking alternative beverages now. So in a beer, in, in the beer world, what do you, what are you enjoying? Oh yeah. Um, I do, I do like a lot of different beers. Um, for the most part, I gravitate towards IPAs. Um, okay. and I'm more interested in kind of, uh, a drier, crisper IPA, you know, pre the era of, all these hazies and super juicy things and and all of that madness um remembering one back at ithaca beer you know 10 12 years ago uh called flower power and i thought that was just a a stellar ipa a a nice crisp pale ale with a heavy hopping um you know and so nowadays that would be called a west coast pale ale i think Mm -hmm. that's how that tracks um but then at the same time uh i work at the south puget sound community college and in their craft brewing and distilling program, craft brewing, okay. distilling and cider program, I should say. And so okay. uh, hanging out with those folks and kind of osmotically, tangentially absorbing uh, a whole lot of beer nerddom, uh, I, you know, I'm much more willing to, you know, go to the bottle shops and end up with a, a Flanders Reds or Kolsch's and Pilsner's and seeing the, the varied abilities and, you know, what these defined styles are, uh, are intended to be. And then appreciating when and where and what culture that would fit into, which okay. would take me back towards like cider. Um, you've got things like French cider, English cider and Spanish cider as our three main uh, kind of cultural uh, lineages of, of cider producing on the planet. And you'll see Spanish cider. And, you know, I believe at one point it was not legal for sale uh, in France because Spanish cider had too much volatile acidity or, or too much uh, vinegar, basically. Uh, to okay. legally be sold as wine. Uh, and so it was too flawed to be sold in the French market or exported as a wine. And, okay. um, you know, that is a bit of lore that uh, I have not fact-checked. So be my guest okay. to uh, source through yeah. those notions. But in that, well, I, I, yeah. No one's going to argue that the French and the Spanish won't, won't be defending their own turf. So, you know, <laughs> I could completely see that happening. Right? Well, so... and. When, what it comes down to is like, why would someone want to drink a cider that is open fermented, naturally funky, bringing, you know, wild yeast profiles and uh, a sharp, you know, scathing acidity that some people see as flawed. And, you know, it, it hits in that same notion of like, why would people want a soured beer? Um, and when did the word sour become positive as opposed to a negative term, right? Uh, and so in the, in the framework of, of Spanish cider, if you look at it, uh, cloistered in the cuisine of the region, um, it is it is a glorious cultural addition, and it is absolutely perfect with so much of, of the rural, you know, countryside food in the Basque region up there. And you know, w- without going too deep into those dishes, if you think about terrines and and what Spanish food really looks like, is pretty heavy, um, wow. high oil contents, a lot of seafood. Uh, and uh, a lot of cured meats, porks, and uh, sausages, 
and then heavy baked casserole kind of things, right? Um, and you want a sharp shot of, of of earthy cider to just like slice through that hard salty cheese to slice through uh, the the I don't know snails that you're eating as a tapas or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so it just has so much context. Might be a little bit weird to like take to a tailgate party uh, over at a Seahawks game and just like chug in the in the before you go into the stadium or something. So it's not right for every occasion. Sure. But within its own culture, it's just glorious. And so, you know, like Cafe du Monde with a with a beignet, a little fried food and some powdered sugar, like that is a primo morning right there. Um, okay. All right. I mean I I like the way that you gave it context. Okay. <laughs> that you you no, because you're right. If you if somebody were to hand you a Spanish cider at a tailgate at a Seahawks game, you'd probably, you know, maybe you spit it out and go, this is awful. But under, with the right pairing, it's amazing. Sure. I mean, including with the right music, with the right people, right? right, right. Um, With the right ambiance. Uh, like mm-hmm. context is, is totally important. Um, right. And I think the same applies to beer, right? You can always say that you're going to drink your, your IPAs because all I ever order is an IPA. Um, mm-hmm. Or you can say, I'm going to drink the appropriate beer for the appropriate occasion. Uh, sure. And when there's, you know, crusty oven baked bread and spicy mustard and bratwurst, it's going to be, you know, a Kolsch or a Pilsner or uh, possibly even like a Berliner Weiss or something like that. Right. You're going to find the thing that speaks culturally to what you're eating and you're going to enhance your total experience. And that seems rad. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's talk about pairing Finn River ciders with food. Let's let's just go there. Sure. What? Uh, well, I'll just let you. Yeah. Just talk. <laughs> Given um, my culinary background, uh, I I do feel like it. There's been some reliance to, for for me to uh, suggest and push with those pairings, and there's you know the world where it's like ah oh, it goes great with grilled chicken and a salad. Um, which you can say for a lot of things, right? So there's definitely like generic notions of like, uh, it, it really doesn't matter what you're drinking. If it's fresh and tart, it'll be great with summertime uh, or something right. along those lines. Um, as you get more nuanced, you know, we're, we've been working on the lexicon at the Northwest Cider Association to help other folks determine how to pair ciders up. Um, we're looking for things that inspire you to create that ambience. And so I think in, in the pairing world, there are some basic rules um, about, you know, palate cleansing and sweetness and, and the balance of acidity and or chewy tannins that would lend certain ciders to either certain cheeses or certain main dishes. Um, I don't think I would recommend our blackcurrant cider, which is very fruity and super tart um, with like a creamy Alfredo. Um, But I do have something that would go well with the creamy Alfredo and it pours a bit more like a gentle white wine. Uh, And so there's there's some, you know, certainly there are wrong pairings to throw out there. But at the Mm -hmm. same point in time, a pairing is me or or someone like me imagining what they think would blend well and how you would create this ambiance. How can you you know, if if you're going with a Spanish cider I don't think you need to put Spanish food on the table, but you should uh, uh, take into consideration that Spanish food has certain characteristics and Spanish cider has certain characteristics and matching some of those things together will mm-hmm. really enhance your experience as opposed to, uh, you know, things 
uh, bumping heads uh, in your experience. And so if it's not Manchango, uh, it could be another dry aged cheese. Uh, and there's uh, other pathways to get to dry cheese, harder, saltier cheeses. And, you know, the, the Italians make a bunch of awesome, hard, salty cheeses. There's uh, uh, hard Swiss cheeses that are quite delightful. In that kind of context, it doesn't have to be Spanish. Um, you don't need to go to your cheese uh, section and only be satisfied when you find that perfect pairing. Um, mm-hmm. But considering what you're, you know, thinking through what you're putting together. If you're thinking about pairings, then you're trying to enhance an experience. And, you know, do olives go well with fruity things? Not so much um, that, you know, I, I'm not going to take a bite of a peach and then pop three olives in my mouth. That doesn't seem appropriate to me. So I would. Yeah. Uh, good. <laughs> and, and so the the idea of of pairings, um, I'm sure sommeliers could have a, a much more firm interpretation of what works and what doesn't work. In fact, I know that, that there are absolute firm rules around pairings uh, in the world of cider. We are not beholden to the traditions and the history, uh, especially in the United States, of uh, uh, like the wine industry and like the beer styles guides. And uh, we don't have to make Normandy style cider. We don't have to make English country cider and we don't have to make Asturian cider. But we can uh, make something that we think speaks to our regionality. And so if we're going to speak to our regionality, I think pairings that enhance that idea of regionality, if you're going to have a Midwestern cider, what else could you do that would make you uh, transport you just a bit more into that Michigan or wherever else the Midwest is that I'm not aware of? Um, And and so in the bioregion of, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest or or Washington State, uh, you know, do we have ciders that I think go great with grilled salmon? Yeah, totally. Can you put uh, something fruity with salmon? Absolutely. Uh, can you imagine huckleberries, blueberries, salal berries, uh, and, and blackberries all being part of something that you eat with a fillet of grilled salmon in some form or another in compotes or syrups or drizzles? Absolutely. Could you put that in a glass next to your plate and have some synergy there? Totally. Uh, okay. Yeah. At the same time, we make uh, a number of things that aren't in the contemporary, you know, like Contemporary generally means cider with stuff added to it, right? Infused botanicals, fruit additions, uh, that kind of notion. Well, we also ferment a number of, you know, apple-centric estate-based ciders that are a whole lot more like a 750 ml of wine or champagne than they are like a can of something crushable, right? And and they move in different directions. And so in our harvest-based world, we do spend a fair bit of time dancing with cheeses and uh, uh, cool sourdough breads. And, you know, our farm chef is putting together uh, flavor profiles and we're looking at how, you know, what's, which of our ciders will go with this week's special. Uh, and um, in that context, we get to play in so many games in the cider industry. And it's one of the bases of like creative joy not only in what we get to make, but how we get to talk about it. We can put wasabi in a cider and take it to a festival. And then I can uh, get these, you know, heirloom cider apples that are of French and English origin. And we can make a a single hillside estate blend that is tannic and robust. And from my perspective, speaks to the flavor of the hillside. So -hmm. we can get super wine-like and we can get uh, uh, more millennial and innovative and give you the hottest, newest thing. Um, 
I think Reverend Nat famously at, at one point aged cider on uh, strawberry rhubarb hand pies. And yeah, aging cider on a pie. Uh, and there were chunks of the pie in the bottom of the bottle, like the size of my thumb fingernail or something like that. And you're thinking, wow, who would do that? And I, I appreciate the Vanguard because the Vanguard, you know, creates the wake uh, uh, for us. So I can, right? Uh, so long as uh, as Nat and his team are are going out on a limb and showing us the the nouveau, then I have plenty of space to be innovative uh, behind without um, needing to have the fanfare of being the weirdest in the front line, right? But right. on that final sip, when that pie chunk hit me in the mouth and I ate it, it was awesome. Uh, and it and it totally and it still tasted like strawberries and rhubarb. And there was a thin sheen of fat. I'm assuming from the pie crust that was on the top of the cider. I mean, it was it totally broke all the rules, right? Um, it was not attractive in the bottle. There were chunky, floaty bits. I'm sorry, Nat, if you're listening to this. I really do like it. It's all positive here, I swear. Um, but the uh, the the framework there um, shows you uh, uh, just a bit about where American cider is. And the lines we're walking. So we're drawing customers in from such a diverse uh, set of demographics where I'm throwing habanero peppers or, uh, in one case, valerian root, sweet Sicily pods and cottonwood buds to make this herbal blend that's, you know, uber herby. And then we can also look at uh, uh, putting cacao hulls into a, a cordial or a wine. We can put chai spices into things. Um, we can innovate and bring out flavor profiles of our region. And there's the customer base is eating it up and, and loving it. Drinking it up. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> totally correct. Because <laughs> I'm not putting pie, so there is no eating. Uh, You're right. <laughs> at least not yet. And I guess when, when we think about that, that innovation space um, and the multitude of demographics, Finn River definitely has you know, toes in a lot of different tubs uh, as far as what our product line is and what we make. And that primarily is because people just keep coming to me with amazing fruit. And so one of the better parts of my job is this network of, of suppliers that I, I get to navigate and work with from, you know, buying entire crops of blackcurrant uh, from the Okanagan Valley or buying the whole quarter acre of hop scotch bonnet type peppers uh, from just over the mountains and buying saffron from down in Tillamook and putting saffron into my cider and being able to tell those stories. So I can put saffron in a cider, which is something that no white winemaker would do. Um, or they would have to brand it in such an audacious way to convince people that that was going to be worth their time and money. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that shows you tradition and culture around wine. Well, cider's got more leeway. And I think, you know, it can be done poorly. I'm not saying that all, all of this freedom is, is always phenomenal. But in the, in the framework of, of, of crafting things and having a, a mind to bring diverse ingredients from uh, cool places in. Like we make a plum wine that we're going to do up like champagne and make a pure plum champagne, which I wanted to call plum pain, but was told that that will not happen. And that, um, but <laughs> in, in, in that kind of space for innovation, uh, you know, you link it back to pairings. We did a specialty habanero that was our uh, golden ghost cider. And so it was golden ghost peppers with some sage and some thyme uh, herbs infused into it and brought back to a medium level sweetness. So we're doing sweet, spicy, and savory all in a pint glass, right? Very herbaceous out breath. 
And so when you think about pairings, sure, you can take habanero peppers and you can be like fish tacos all day long, uh, by all means. But you can also get into, uh, you know, with that sage and thyme that leads you towards proteins like pork and chicken um, and, and white fish. And then you can, you know, spiral out on how you prepare each of those dishes and where you end up, knowing that you have that inspiration of this kind of sweet, spicy, savory uh, beverage to work with. Or you could go the other way around and you find yourself uh, coming out of the kitchen with a giant pork roast. And they're like, well, what do we want to do with it? And I'm like, well, you got it covered in juniper berries and bay leaves. And, and I've got this cider that has complementary herbs in it like that. And like, bam. So it works in both directions, you know, designing food from the cider or designing cider from the food. I'm going to put you on the spot. Mm. I, I, this is an impossible, impossible question. You can only work with one apple. That's it. No more. Mm-hmm. This you get one 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 answer. You know, no 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 other ciders the rest of your cider making career. What apple are you going to pick? Golly, I had one, and then I was like, no, and then no, and I'm spiraling into indecision. Um, I'm going to track back to my gut, which was my first response, uh, which was a Kingston Black. Um, All right. And I can explain why. Um, Perfect. Because I also understand this is a ridiculous question. Sure. I fully admit that. But I'm glad you actually said Kingston Black because I'm looking at the Kingston Black trio. So oh, yeah. What, why, why Kingston Black, first off? And then tell us about the trio. Sure. That's neat. That was not planned just for all you listeners. No, it wasn't. Not at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the... The Kingston Black is in a category called uh, a bit, bitter sharp apples, which means it has both high acidity and uh, a pretty high level of tannins. Where versus say a bitter sweet category, which has uh, a very low acidity, so kind of slippery, no no zing in your cheeks. But the Kingston Black brings both acidity and tannins to the table, which is kind of like your golden boy. It's the most perfect thing. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so the bitter sharp of the Kingston Black, uh, bringing a little bit of the best of both worlds, is one of the few apples that people will present a single varietal with uh, because it brings structure and body. Those come from the tannins uh, and it brings acidity balance against sweetness and bitterness, which uh, is those acids showing through after fermentation. So in that context, um, I could live on some Kingston Black. They also taste pretty good. They're a little bit cakey and dry. The skin's a little too thick. The The background is, uh, the the, but the flavor is kind of like almost a little bit artificial grape candy. Um, and so like, <laughs> okay, like it's just good, right? And so I'm not saying they're my favorite for eating, but they definitely are, are one of the best to ferment with and they show well by okay. themselves. Yeah. So what is the Kingston Black Trio that you guys are offering? Yeah, it digs into this concept of terroir, uh, right? The flavor of the earth or the flavor of the minerals showing through in the wine, meaning that if we grew Kingston Black apples in Chimacum uh, in a certain style or a certain kind of soil, that those Kingston Black apples would show different characteristics than uh, the same apple grown uh, on the other side of the mountains, say, up by Wenatchee. Uh, where you have different geological formations, different water sort of different conditions altogether, right? Um, but cider being such a young industry, the idea of terroir uh, is is something of the ages that has been developed over, you know, I would say close to centuries, uh, generally speaking. And you need cider makers to be making the same uh, ciders, single varietals or specific blends with proportions. You need some standardization to be able to make comparisons. And, okay. and so if you don't have the standardizations to make comparisons, uh, 
then you don't really have anything to base terroir on. And so the Kingston Black Trio is just a tidbit of the beginning of showing that kind of beauty and expression of regionality. Uh, one of the bottles is purely from the Finn River Orchard. One of the bottles is uh, from uh, a friend's orchard in Squim, Washington, which uh, is in the rain shadow of the Olympics, about 35 miles west uh, of, of Port Townsend. And, you know, we're in a, the Chimokum Valley and they're in the kind of delta uh, of the Dungeness. And so we're, we're similar, but yet different. They get significantly less rain, but yet irrigation mellows those things, but they get more sun and a higher heat index overall. Uh, and then we also had a connection in the Okanagan Valley. Um, and we got Kingston Blacks from them as well, from a place called Iron Root Orchard, where we sourced some pretty rad cider fruit. And so they get significantly more sunshine. They're on, as far as I know, kind of like that old high basalt plateau uh, that is eastern Washington, right? The steppes, so to speak. And yep. uh, I haven't looked into soil types and all of that because honestly, that takes it just a bit too far for most consumers. Uh, but we got apples, the same apple from three different locations, and we fermented them each separately uh, in very similar fashions. Not totally a, a clinical trial because fundamentally I need to make something that's also going to be delicious. So we, we mm -hmm. let each batch kind of speak to us and decided, tasted it through and decided on sugar levels um, in, in that respect. So they're not identical so that you can just taste the difference of the apple because I don't think that that's fair to customers, right? Uh, each bottle needs to be delicious as well as exemplary of, uh, of its origins. And so we put this trio together as, you know, three different ways to engage with the Kingston Black Apple. And they come from three different bioregions, and they represent slightly differently. But spontaneous ferments, we didn't add yeast. So this is, you know, fermented by the yeast that came on the apples, which conceivably mm -hmm. would be different and would respond differently to fermentation conditions. Uh, and then we put them into bottles, and we've sold it, to my understanding, uh, exclusively as a three-pack. Uh, uh, because I, I, I kind of, like, they're good, and I would buy them anyways. But I don't really want you to buy one, just one. Uh, I want you to buy all three and get some cheese and like work through them. And and so this was my attempt at trying to engage the, the, the nerddom or the academics or the folks that want to see the terroir developed, right? So you give us another okay. 25 years of this and we begin to take a move towards uh, appellations of origin and, uh, you know, quality characteristics defined by soil type and region. I'm scrolling back here into the shopping cart i have to pick my state again how many states are you guys currently shipping to well we ship on our online store to gosh like 42 or something along those lines uh, and that's through uh, a couple of different uh software platforms that hold licenses to support that so we can we okay. can get most states you know i think alabama is a difficult one for example um okay but uh which is different than distribution um, and so in distribution, we're primarily in Washington State and Oregon, and we dabble in California. Uh, we're, we're in Du Bois and all of Montana. So we've got a pretty good holding here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then, you know, there are a few outliers like Texas and Arizona, uh, where we have some, you know, champions in our distribution partnership who really think highly of what we do. And that's really what makes the difference. You know, we're distributed in places where we have champion storytellers who who are values aligned with Finn River and think that what we're doing is worth talking about 
And that's how cider gets, you know, sold in these faraway places. I'm scrolling mad, badly here. Not, I'm expecting you to be the master of the website. Oh my. Uh huh. But on the cart, on the cart, there's a picture of 13 bottles lined up against each other. Oh, yeah. And one of them I'm not seeing in the store. Mm-hmm. And it's in it's the bottles looks more like a whiskey bottle. So a more rectangular shaped. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it's when I blow it up, is it persimmon? It's pomo. Okay, um, I'm not seeing that in the cart. So, p- but the bottle caught my eye because it looked a little different than mm-hmm. everything else. We've changed bottles since that photo has been taken. Oh, um, okay. And so that's a 500 mil, and it's kind of rectangular. Um, and now it's in a 750 mil cylindrical bottle. Um, okay. Probably at the bottom of the shopping selection. That pomo is uh, a French apéritif, which means something uh, liqueur that you uh, consume before. Um, before dinner and maybe even before uh, cheese and appetizers and things like that. And so you you traditionally get a small little, you know, one ounce or two ounce pour of pomo. And it's what you sip on while you're talking around in the kitchen while dinner is being brought to the table kind of thing. And it is a blend of fresh juice and apple brandy. And you take, so unfermented juice and brandy, you blend them together and you tuck them away into barrels for, you know, two or three years. Um, All of our Pomo is at least two years old. Um, And so you get a a pretty strong barrel character from Finn Rivers Pomo. And it has a select blend of apples to try and build some complexity. And it's like the closest thing to whiskey I get to make uh, in terms of strong barrel character, a little bit hot, um, Mm -hmm. but super accessible. It had been a while. I was at Capital Cider, uh, which is uh, up on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And I saw a table and they had bought a bottle of our Pomo and just had it on the table. And there were three people and they seemed to be proceeding to just like drink the bottle. They played, paid the corkage fee. And I didn't realize that it had that kind of appeal. And that struck me. So I tried it at home uh, as, a, as a concept there, um, having Pomo as like a beverage for an evening, the way you would say, well, we're drinking, you know, red wine tonight or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a little sweeter than I normally go. It's got natural apple sweet levels of sweetness. And so that was a lot of apple juice uh, in terms of that framework. But what a what a pleasant way to go about it. You know, before that, I saw it as something that I would sip on ahead of time and make special occasions with uh, and downgrading it to, you know, common consumption while also being great for Finn River um, is a, a pretty solid way to enjoy it through the night. All right. Also pretty rad in cocktails for that matter. Really? Mm-hmm. But which cocktails? That's a topic I haven't covered with anybody, and I don't want to cover it with you today, but I think I would like to talk to you about doing it a separate thing. But I'm scrolling through here, and there's there's too many things to, to talk about them all. <laughs> just like does. I said, people keep bringing me things. There's good ideas. And bringing the diversity of, of cider and fermentations to the table uh, represents life. Um we're not bringing a product line. We're, we're bringing, you know, the fermentations of our region to the table. Uh, and they are varied and, and in multitude. Okay. Let me ask you this question. I show up in Chimicum and you're going to say, Scott, I want you to try this. Mm-hmm. What would that be? What would be the thing you would set in front of me and say, I want, I want you to, I want you to experience this from Finn River. Mm-hmm. The sparkle in my eye right now 
um, comes from our pollinator series. And our pollinator series uh, is in relationship with our land tenants here. We have a 50-acre farm, and we have uh, four or five tenants that share space and rent acreage from us. And I've endeavored to make ciders with the things that they grow, um, which has been an interesting challenge. Um, and so for the Organic Seed Alliance, I made one with sunflower seeds and carrot seeds and some purple carrot juice uh, into it, and that became sun and seed. And I thought that was lovely. And, you know, there's three, four other tenants, and I made pretty successful, if not strange, botanical ciders that embraced and gave people an opportunity, a springboard to, to speak about the innovative work that's happening on this farm. And there's this one grain grower who happens to be Keith Kessler, founder of Finn River. He uh, grows a lot of grain and makes flour and has the Finn River Grain Company. And he's growing, you know, wheat and buckwheat and uh, rye and spelt and all sorts of fun stuff in the fields right next to our orchard. And I was trying to figure out, like, how in a gluten-free world can I possibly put um, something that he makes into cider so that I can make a cider that embraces his work, right? Uh, and so I, my first idea was to just put a shovel full of dirt into the bottom of a tank uh, from one of his fields and make a dirt cider. And I thought that would be pretty rad. And my marketing department said no. Um, <laughs> they don't sound like they're very much fun. Just they, they're telling you no an awful lot here. Well, you know, I think boundaries create structure and structure is the framework for creativity, right? I need some bookends here. Yeah. Bookends are important. Absolutely. But <laughs> um, and so uh, going back on that, I was talking about fresh cut grass and how good it smells in the valley when he's cutting hay. And so we were talking about that and I needed to avoid seed heads. And, and Keith said he'd cut me uh, a, a, a bale of fresh early spring hay. And so he brought me this bale of hay that was from the first cutting uh, in the early summer. And it had a lot of clover flowers in it. I mean, I think as hay goes, it probably had a lot of weeds in it. Um, mm -hmm. But I had this nice batch of finished cider, and I literally just got to shove books of hay into it. Like when you open up a bale, it kind of comes off in chunks. Uh, right. And, and I was just immersing chunks of this bale of hay down into this tank of cider. And uh, we left it in there for just over 24 hours and, and then pulled it out pretty quick. And I got this beautiful, like earthy, fresh cut mowed lawn kind of outbreath where it's not dominant it's not like uh the green grass harry potter jelly belly right where you're like whoa that tastes like grass um it's it's <laughs> subtle and it's on the outbreath and it provide and it balances against a high acid cider and it's called field of hay and it has some gorgeous artwork on the bottle and a, and a blurb on the back about uh fin river grain and uh you know what it means to grow grain and in, in at small scales in this uh era and economy and it also happens to be amazing um and not only like on a cold day refreshing so that when you burp you like burp in fresh grass um but uh as a as a as a pairing um and what it brings to the table it brings an herbaceousness and earthiness um a grassiness which are qualities of of fine wine and you can lay out prosciutto and you can lay out your cheeses you can uh, uh put it with a burger and you have enough balance and and clarity in that cider that it just it blew me away like i thought it was funny and i knew we'd sell uh, a little bit of it and we could talk about it and keith would be tickled and all that kind of stuff and then as it turns out i kind of think it's really really good um and and it's it's novel but at the same time uh it's a perfect springboard in that pollinator series to facilitate 
table conversations about something more than the cider because it's always been about something more than the cider. Wow. I never thought I would be talking to somebody about hay cider <laughs> in a burger. Yeah, baby. In the same in the same sentence basically. Well, and speaking to the diversity of uh food and cider culture, um, you know, where would we be if the food truck outside the cider house is selling, you know, barbecued pork sliders and we couldn't come up with a cider that that would speak and embrace a, a big, heavy, drippy barbecue sauce thing with some onion rings. Right. So um, I've got some ciders that I think would stand there uh, and, and, you know, being adaptable into that food world. We've got options and, and we can we can dig in and make sure that we have a cider for you um, wherever you are, whatever you're up to. All right. What's the future looking like for Finn River? What what's do you guys got anything in the in the works that you can talk about that's, you know, c- coming down the road or Well, I got to say I think we're we're really just holding on. Um mm-hmm. and, and definitely still in a pretty solid recovery mode. Um, you know, we We've got debts to pay and operating loans in the world and, you know, a market share to recapture. Um, COVID has been difficult as an industry that not only is part of the restaurant industry in our own, you know, flagship location, but also, um, you know, serves the larger restaurant uh, industry as uh, our main distribution pathways, right? And so getting it doubly in there, our, our outgoing sales as well as our internal sales uh, certainly took a hit. Um, our staffing took a hit and, and we held ourselves together pretty well. And so I, I have dreams by all means uh, in terms of the future. And, but I think the horizon you know, is moving from about 30 days, which is where it's been for about two years, uh, as far as how far ahead can we see. Um, and, and maybe we're just now pushing up. Uh, we're seeing a whole summer uh, of activity planned with live events uh, and or live music and some of our more regular festivals and events coming back to spaces here in Chimicum, as well as in mm-hmm. the Port Townsend area. And, you know, we're, we're thinking that we can staff people and that we have enough employees to to provide the level of excellence that we, we are committed to. So like those things are coming together really happy to keep the horizon like this summer this summer is going to be great uh and it's going to be great here in chimicum with uh lovely weather and sunshine and delightful cider at the same time you know trying to look at what the the cider industry as a whole is looking like in some of my roles at the northwest cider association or at the community college down there in olympia um thinking about shaping workforces and continuing to elevate cider as a category uh, we are, as a, a small-scale cidery, but also a, a voice for uh, sustainability in cider operations or in business operations. We're uh, a certified B Corp, and so we have values to further. Um, and there's a, a lot of, how do you put it, um, there's a lot of inequity to stand and face. Uh, at, at the moment uh, as a business in a capitalist model and as a business that is claiming to be better or different um, or elevated from other businesses in that kind of B Corp way or the salmon safe way, certified organic way, those kind of things. Um, you know, where is the work that needs to be done? 
uh, and I think it's there in that fabric of community. And so my vision or my, my hope for the, the growth of Finn River um, is to continue to pursue that kind of uh, a beautiful fabric of, uh, of community that is inclusive um, to make sure that as we, you know, have our various conversations about equity in this country and in this community, um, that we can stand with it and behind uh, our positions and our claims and really walk the walk. That feels paramount. And I think that's on the horizon as we um, investigate policies and have difficult conversations regularly. Okay. So when you're not making cider, when you're not in helping teach the next generation of beer makers and cider makers, what do you like to do for fun and fun and recreation? Yeah. Well, I have a, a 10 year old daughter. Um, and this, for example, this year was, uh, her fifth grade year and in Washington state, fifth graders ride for free at most of the ski resorts. Uh, and so I felt it was probably the least expensive time for her to learn, uh, winter sports in that particular way. And so I bought myself a season pass to Hurricane Ridge, which is our local uh, uh, rope toe based uh, ski hill, the only ski resort in a national park, as far as I understand it, uh, and up there near Port Angeles, right? And so we had to get there uh, six times in order for me to break even uh, on my season pass. And so we hit uh, seven adventures uh, up to Hurricane Ridge for ski days, and then I capped that off with a, a final end of the season trip here in April uh, to the Mount Baker ski area. Uh, which was, you know, her first time on a chairlift, for example, um, and her first time having just epic, you know, two and three minute long rides where your legs are exhausted just trying to get down the mountain um, and you need the chairlift uh, for rest and recovery time. So there's some outdoor sports. Um, I do a fair bit uh, of gardening and working on setting up a big greenhouse at, at our own uh, property. And uh, I play a little soccer, but less and less as, as the, the bones and the joints get older. Um, we raise some some mason bees and uh, plenty of chickens and things like that. So there's very domestic aspects that are where I take my respite. Uh, yeah. How did she like the chairlift? How, uh, what, so yeah. for, let me ask a two-part question. So Hurricane Ridge, and she's up on the tow rope, was she enjoying herself? Oh, yeah. I mean, like okay. wailing on it. It takes some upper body strength uh, to hold onto that that rope toe, and she's always, mm -hmm. for a number of years now, kind of prided herself on her ability to do push ups and pull ups, and uh, uh, generally feel strong. And so mm -hmm. she, you know, really enjoyed the kind of the ego boost of being strong enough to handle the the intermediate level rope toe that just like yanks you up this hill. <laughs> Um, All right. And so she was just looping the, the, the one main run and just, you know, kamikaze, you know, flying down the mountain fast, coming in hot to that lift line, getting warnings from the lifties being like, yo, 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 you got to hit the brakes before you slide into line. Um, and, <laughs> you know, opening and closing the system like on that in last in line, getting up the hill at the end of the day and right there ready up at six in the morning to get moving and uh, to get there. So um, there was definitely passion and and total enjoyment on those days. So how did that translate over to Mount Baker? Uh, we talked about the word bougie for the first time. Um, oh. She couldn't believe how kickback and relaxed these chairlift things were. She's like, wow, you don't even have to work for it to get up the mountain. Like, 
you know, one of the things that fatigued us at Hurricane Ridge by the end of the day was that like your hands couldn't grip the rope toe anymore tight enough to get you all the way up the hill. And it was just like, I don't have it in me. And, you you know, you're you're you got noodle arms and that's where the fatigue right. really come in. And so the just that idea of sitting on a chairlift just tickled her pink. Right. Um, and, you know, groomed slopes, there's one side of that mountain is just a huge pile of level or, or blue blue runs that are beautiful and wavy and so much space. And she was just just floored at the, the level of engagement there um, and, you know, and the number of people, but also just like, whoa, chairlifts, chairlifts are a big deal. Um, OK, mm-hmm. so you've got a skier on your. On your hands. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, sixth grade year coming up. It's a different uh, perspective from my vantage point. Um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, maybe. I, my wife brought that same notion up. Like, really, did you just need to cultivate and encourage one of the more uh, expensive pathways to outdoor uh, enjoyment? And so we're having uh, lively debates about that. Uh, I don't know that we're like Whistler bound or anything along those lines, but Mount Baker is a pretty special place as well. Uh, a bit of a local's hideout, hard to get to. That's just, that's mm-hmm. just our style. All right. Well, as we wrap this up, this is my, this is my catch all question at the end of every show. So what didn't I ask you that I should have? Hmm. I think, um, to a certain extent, We've talked about it, uh, or I've been speaking about it most of the time, but like, why is Finn River Cider something different um, in, a, in a cider market that has you know, hundreds of new cideries uh, where we don't even know if we have the market share in the category to support this many? Like, there's a lot of education out there um, necessary mm-hmm. to support a continually growing category or, or you know, segment of business. Um, and I... I think that framework about, you know, like why Finn River, like why would you, why would you choose? And it comes down to this idea of values alignment and, and, you know, talking about why we connect with people and why Finn River is doing what it's doing, but also why you're doing whatever you're doing. Um, and, and seeing that the network of support between values aligned people uh, builds a more powerful community voice. And so, you know, when you when you choose Finn River for, as your date night cider, um, you've made a values based choice. One to have a really nice uh, uh, evening with your uh, choice person and your choice cider and all of that kind of good stuff. But you've um, also made a choice to support uh, our rural economy and to support livelihoods uh, that are doing real things with real human beings um, that are speaking about you know ethical wages and speaking about you know, how to support community growth in, in this era of, of the United States. In that kind of context, um, I think it takes me back to this notion of Julia Butterfly. Remember that I went to Humboldt State for 10 years. Um, and Julia Butterfly uh, used to end many of her, her presentation or her speeches with uh, a conversation about using your green energy. Um, and while we were at 420 festivals, um, the green energy that she was speaking at uh, or speaking to had to do with your consumer capital, right? Like your money um, and where you spend your money uh, changes how that money cycles through the economy. And so choosing local 
um, and choosing to engage with the things that you put inside your body and think deeply about them. You know, these are the things that, that Finn River is interested in. And it allows me to be on a, on a page where I can openly and delightfully encourage you to support other cider houses and support the growth of the cider category by caring about the Kingston Black Trio and thinking about uh, cheese and uh, protein sources and what you're going to pair things with. Let's elevate this regional product because apples grow here. Uh, and this is a value-added uh, a pathway that feels um, doable and, and accessible. And so if that is true, how do we elevate this as a whole? And we do that with these values-aligned choices. And so, um, yeah, it's a little long-winded, but it, it ties it all in. And it's what keeps me going. You know, why, why am I staying in Chimicum for 10 years after being in Louisiana and New York and L.A. and Kennewick? Um, <laughs> yeah, a little roundabout there, but I think that gets to it. It does. That's, I, I appreciate that. Well, Andrew, once again, your tenaciousness with technology. Oh, yeah. Because... Just, I appreciate that, and I have enjoyed myself immensely listening to you talk about, you know, I can't believe we're going to talk about mushroom water, chicory, <laughs> and coffee. We didn't even talk about birds. Kid. Oh, yeah, we didn't. I mean, we could, got, we could have gone in many, many different directions. I know that. But no, I, in, all, in all seriousness, um, listening to you talk about cider and listening to you talk about the mission that Finn River is on has been truly enjoyable. And so I appreciate your time and thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure, Scott. I appreciate what you do and the perspectives that you bring to your uh, guests in your presentations. Um, it makes the world feel available and, and that's necessary too. At the same time, I would love to see it come out here. Um, and that goes to uh, everyone else out there as well. Um, Finn River is about having people out here. Come put your feet on the ground out here. It's both glorious and invigorating. Well, we will put a link to the Finn River site on the show notes so that people can check that out and see the hours of operation and all that, what's coming up and all that, because you guys have a nice, nice detailed list. Yeah. And uh, you will see me out there. I will uh, I will be there this summer. Um, Fantastic. And it's, it's the time that we're recording this. It seems like summer is just around the corner. I mean. Yeah, um, I'll believe it when I see it. And my <laughs> summer calendar is frighteningly crowded already, yeah, but it's gonna be this is gonna be a fun year for me to get out and explore Washington. So I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. We'll talk soon. Scott. Take care. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.